Welcome back to the Exploring Revelation podcast. I'm Colt Robinson, and I am glad that you're here today. You're tuning in with us. Uh, Just a couple of housekeeping things before we begin. First of all, if you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to get those to me. You can email me at coltr at gmail.com. That's C-O-A-L-T-R at gmail.com. That might be the the best way, you can also head over to exploringrevelation.com. Uh, in the top right, I believe, there's a contact um, button up there. You can click that. You can contact us that way. Uh, just one more thing. Uh, if you uh, if this podcast has benefited you, then please uh, just share it with somebody uh, that you think that they might find it edifying as well. And if you've enjoyed uh, the podcast and are so inclined, leave a review. That is always helpful when it comes to people finding it on the different platforms. So uh, with that, let's really get into this. We're going to get into Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 today. I can hear how some might be thinking, boy, this first, these first verses of this, it's just, it's just introduction. Let's just skip this stuff. We want to get to the good stuff. Well, I can't promise that the material in these verses is what you're going to think of as good stuff. Uh, so I can't promise that, but I, I can say that this is God's word. I can also say that there's some really good and, and foundational points that are made in these first verses here. And in my mind, it would be a, a mistake to skip over them. It would be a mistake to, to even gloss uh, over them for the sake of, of getting into some of the other things uh, in the book. And I think that as you'll listen, you'll see uh, what I mean here, that this is just foundational as we go into the rest of the book. And I suppose it would be helpful for you to have your Bible out and then follow along. If you're like me, though, you you listen to podcasts while you're driving or you're doing something. You're not just sitting down with your Bible, your highlighter and a notebook uh, to take notes. And, and, you know, so for you, that's that's not an option, uh, probably. So let me just read the verses for you that we'll be covering, and then we'll spend some time and, and talk about them. So Revelation chapter one, Uh, starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So not a long portion of scripture, but definitely a lot in there. And we'll try to unpack that and kind of organize it in an outline and make it make sense for the next few minutes I'll try to answer some of those questions, right, that have arisen from the text already as you as you heard it uh, or you, you read it, like the reference to seven spirits there. It, it, you know, what's that talking about? Well, we'll get it, we'll get into that in just a, a minute. But let's start from the beginning. The first words here are actually not very strange at all. Uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a common 
greeting. Paul, for instance, addressed the letter to uh, the Galatians, right? The churches that are in Galatia. Sometimes we think of Galatia as being a community where a church is in which Paul was writing, but that isn't the case. The fact is Paul was writing a letter to the churches that are in that area known as Galatia. So therefore it was, and and this is too, Revelation, a circular letter, meaning that it was addressed to a number of different churches. Sent uh, to the first one, they read it, perhaps they copied it, and then they kept circulating it. The the first thing that, that John says to these churches isn't surprising either, right? He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, think of how the reader of the letter, right, from an apostle might understand the reference to grace and peace here. Uh, the, the common reader would have known and understood grace to mean uh, a reference to God's favor given in Christ Jesus to those who did not deserve it, right? Undeserved favor. In fact, the grace of God is is favor given by God, and the opposite of that is favor given by God. The opposite to uh, grace that is given by God is eternal damnation. In other words, God has taken these who left their own devices were destined to a devil's hell, eternal torment, but God, who is rich in mercy, saved them from this plight by his grace through the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So that's that's all bound up in that word grace. When he's saying grace from, from God to, to you, that's what he's, what he's talking about. And, and the reader would have got that. The, the peace here would have been understood as the, the state of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. It's a, a product of saving grace. The two items here are, are very much connected. Can you imagine the, the torment of one soul who is in a, a constant state of worry as to their salvation? Uh, have they been good enough to merit the good pleasure of God or not? Here, John is addressing to this letter to, to ones who have known the grace of God. They, they've known his, his mercy, his undeserved favor. And in that, they're no longer objects of God's wrath, but they're the objects of God's love and, and mercy. And in that, there is great peace knowing that they have been reconciled to God. They're no longer uh, God's enemies, but they are uh, God's children, as it were. Now, we should say something else here, and, and we've said that the reader would have understood these words in a certain way in relation to an, an objective reality in what Christ Jesus has done for them. But think about these terms for a moment without that objective reality, right? We often uh, hear the, the terms grace and, and peace used in a subjective way. We hear people saying uh, as they're parting ways, hey, peace to you, or as they're leaving somebody, you know, they, they would say, uh, you know, hey, uh, grace, grace uh, be with you, or, or something like that. In fact, we could see how one might just be starting this letter and, and using these words in a simple sense as part of a, a greeting. Hey, grace and, and peace to you as they greet this. It could be a, a cultural norm, a, a cultural way to, to start a, a letter, and, and it could be nothing more here. I guess what I'm saying here is, could it be that I'm making too much of a, a big deal out of these words? Is it just a, a common uh, introduction to a, a letter? Grace and peace to you. Let me tell you what I really want to say. Um, I, I don't think so. When these words are 
separated from the objective reality of Christ's work on, on their behalf, the believer in this case, uh, were forced to admit that these terms are just temporary emotional states that have no eternal value. And I think that the point of the book, uh, when we start thinking about what this book is all about, that doesn't make sense that Paul would just use a, a flippant saying there as, as a, a greeting uh, in a way that has no significant or eternal value. I think he's pointing the, the reader's attention right at the onset to something that is, uh, that is of this eternal value, that's something that is uh, a grand in the scheme of things, and it bears weight on what he wants to say next. Notice also that it isn't only John, the author here, that is extending this grace and peace to the readers, but it is this grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. I think it makes clear that the eternal significance in, in all of this, because uh, it is given to him who is, who was, who is to come. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a reference to the eternality of God. So notice something else. And that is the way that the blessings of peace and grace come to us is actually, it comes to us from the Trinity. Don't, don't miss this in the text. The way John words this is very Trinitarian. Uh, first, in, in verse 4, we, we just mentioned, right, that the blessing of peace and grace comes from him who is, who was, and is to come. Of course, that's a, a reference to God uh, the Father. It, it points us back to, to Moses at the burning bush and, and who God is or, you know, how he revealed himself to, to Moses there. Secondly, in, in verse 4, there we, we read, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So this is, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, and, it, and it's a little bit confusing. Seven? Wait a minute. Why are there seven? There's only supposed to be one. I, I get it. At this point, let's just note that this blessing of, of grace and peace comes from the Spirit of God. It, it comes from God the Father, uh, the Spirit of God, and then third, the blessings of grace and, and peace come from Jesus Christ, who is the, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's a, a lot there, and we'll get into that, but I just want you to, to notice that this is a reference to these gifts or these blessings of grace and peace that, that come from Jesus Christ here, the, the faithful witness. So all the members of the Trinity are mentioned here, and they're seen as the source of these blessings that the believer experiences, these blessings of, of the grace of God and the peace of God, which is extremely important uh, to people who are uh, in the midst of, of facing great uh, tribulation and who will continue to face that on a, a great grand scale. So now, as we've pointed out, John doesn't reference the Holy Spirit here in a way that we would expect. In fact, it's a bit confusing. The seven spirits who are before the throne. That's how the ESV puts it. And I think we need to back up a little bit here. I, I said that I thought this was a reference to the Holy Spirit. And perhaps I, I did get ahead of myself there, giving you kind of the, the my interpretation of that uh, before we really got into it. But now it's true that, that most commentators from what I have seen uh, do see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, some will point to Isaiah 11, 2, where the Holy Spirit rests upon the Messiah. 
uh, and that's that's a reference to one, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, three, the spirit of counsel, four, the spirit of might, five, the spirit of knowledge, and then six, the spirit of the, the fear of the Lord. But that's only six unless you add that, that first phrase, the spirit that rests upon the sun. So uh, the seven there, I, I think that's a, a, a little bit of a reach in my mind, uh, thinking that those reading this passage would be drawn back to, to that specific passage. Um, I, I think a better understanding here, and I, and I think an interpretation that will make more sense as we move through the book of Revelation, and that is that the seven here is a reference to perfection. Uh, Philip Carrington uh, said it this way, it's not that the one develops into the many. The one is many in himself, end quote. So this actually makes sense when we do look back to Isaiah 11 in that text and how the Holy Spirit is portrayed there. We're not saying that there are separate spirits, but one spirit with many perfections. Uh, William Milligan says this about the text. He says, and I quote, the seven spirits of God are his one spirit. The seven churches, his one church. The seven horns and the seven eyes of the lamb, his one powerful might and his one penetrating glance, end quote. There's only one church and one lamb, and there's also only one spirit. I, I think here uh, what Milligan is, is helping us with is this number seven. We will speak more about this as, as, as we go on, of course, but the idea here is his perfection. It, it makes sense then that the seven churches that he's writing to are but one church, right? So ask yourself the question, why did he write seven? Why not 15? There were 15 that he could have written to. Uh, he could have written to, to more, or he could have written to eight or four. You know, well, by by writing to, to seven, he's using this, this number in a, in a way that he does in the book to, to make something very clear. He, he's speaking about the, the one church of Christ. In other words, uh, this book was written to you, if indeed you are a member of Christ's church. It's a perfect number, the number of, of completion. And, and I'll say that some have, have said that the seven spirits here isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's a it's the ministering spirits or angels that were present before the throne. In, in instance, uh, it might be uh, the chosen angels mentioned in 1 Timothy 5.21. I, I have trouble with that, not only because it, it ruins the Trinitarian picture there that I love, but... Uh, right, certainly the the spirit doesn't have to be mentioned along with the father and son in every case, uh, but in this case it, it would be a bit strange. I, I think we have blessings of peace and grace that come from the father, the son, and the seven spirits who are in the presence of the throne. I, it, I think that the best interpretation here is to see a, a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number uh, seven here is, is is significant, and it's the number of of perfection, making a, a point there that he's he's talking about Christ Church as a, as a whole, and he's using these these other church. He's using this this number seven, talking about the the seven spirits. He's talking about the the perfections of of the Holy Spirit. But in any case. Um, it is a little bit. It is a little bit difficult in there in the, in the text, but I I do think that's the the way it the way we should understand that. Now, look at verse five. So remember the flow of the verse, right? The blessings of peace and grace come from the the Trinity. Verse five is a reference to G, to Jesus, but notice how the text describes Jesus. He describes Jesus as the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. 
Now, these three descriptions of Jesus are important. They actually really highlight the, the threefold offices of Jesus. Now, when I speak of the offices of Christ, I mean that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and king. So that's the the, the threefold office uh, offices of Jesus Christ, or the prophet, the priest, and the king. So if you want to think more about those offices of Christ, I would just point you over to renewalcast.com. There's a series of, a series of blogs uh, there. I, I think Brian Onstead uh, wrote them. So if you just go look up his contributions to the website, I, I think you'll be able to pick those out. They're not long, but they're very helpful. Um, and I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I just wanted to show you how these statements of uh, of Jesus here, these statements uh, concerning Jesus, identify him as the prophet, the priest, and the king. So Jesus here is, is identified as the faithful witness. Clearly, this is a description of his role as prophet. Certainly, the, the people of Jesus's day saw him as a prophet. We know this from passages like Luke 24, 19. This is where Jesus, after the resurrection, is walking with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. The disciples don't know that they're speaking with Jesus himself and describe Jesus to Jesus as the, the prophet who was mighty in deed and word. Uh, there are numerous passages that we could look to here. Uh, Isaiah 55, before, uh, of course, Jesus was ever born, just foretelling that Jesus would be a, a witness to the peoples. Again, clearly pointing to his role as prophet. But what does this mean, right? First, well, it means that Jesus was an example for those who would bear witness to him in a hostile world. So what happened to the prophets that bore witness to God? Well, they died. They, they were killed. And Jesus, too, was killed because he was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of God, and the people didn't like that, just as those who speak God's word today. The, the world is hostile toward uh, the word of God, just as it was in the days in which John was writing. It was hostile then. We know that it hasn't gotten better. It might have changed a little bit. At least we cannot say that the world isn't hostile to the message of Jesus. It clearly is. Jesus is our prophet, our great witness and example. It is the message of Jesus to which we cling to, and it's the message of Jesus that we proclaim. Why? Well, because Jesus isn't only our prophet, but he's also our priest. Notice in the, the next line there, uh, describing Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. Now, it's clear here that this is a, a reference to, to what? Well, it's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. The hope of the believer in Jesus is not in this world, but it's it's in the resurrection. The one that, that clings to the word, uh, to Jesus's word, is, is the prophet that he, that for him, uh, death isn't the end, just as it, it wasn't the end for Jesus. We will be raised from the dead just as he was. 1 Corinthians 15 is so clear and important here that Jesus' resurrection was a, a reference there to the first fruits of ours. So put this into perspective. The, the book, right, as we know, was written to people that are going through and will be going through intense persecution. And the message here is that those who, who cling to Jesus as the, as the prophet, that they cling to and proclaim the message of Jesus will be vindicated by resurrection, just as Jesus was. Jesus' vindication was first, and the believer's vindication by resurrection will come in, in their time next. But not only is Jesus the, the prophet and the priest, but he's also the king. In, in verse 5, Jesus is described as the ruler of the, king, ruler of the kings of earth. 
this is a, a tremendous picture for those who are facing hostility, right? From the onset, Jesus is the, the prophet. His word is true. It is the word of God himself. And we know what happened to him as he proclaimed the truth. He was killed. He, he died. Now, if, if we proclaim the same message, what can we expect? Possibly the same end, right? Jesus told us that the student wasn't above the teacher. If the student follows in the footsteps of the teacher, then they can expect uh, to have happened to them what happened to the teacher. But as Jesus was vindicated, so will the faithful followers of Jesus be. And then there's this great confidence in knowing that, that nothing in this world happens that is outside the control of Jesus Christ, Christ himself. In fact, he is said to rule the kings of earth. In other words, he is completely sovereign. Something I, I want to come back to next week, especially in relation to verse 6. In verse 6, we see that the, the king is making himself a, a kingdom full of priests, and he accomplishes this through freeing us from our sins by his blood. So sovereignty and our salvation are inseparably connected. That will be uh, next week, Lord willing. So we're just going to leave off right there and then come back to that idea of sovereignty and salvation and what God is doing in the life of the people. So uh, thanks for listening to the Exploring Revelation podcast today. Uh, this week. I, I pray that uh, you've been blessed by it. If, you've, if you have been blessed by it, share it with uh, somebody else that you think will benefit from it. Um, and until next time, uh, we'll continue to, to explore this wonderful book uh, together. 